Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey folks, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the June 18th, 2020 episode, episode 32. Welcome back. Thanks for coming back. Uh, if you're a long-time listener and if you're new, welcome. So today's lesson or today's learning is not a business analysis nor a book review. It's more so I got into... I got pretty deep into the weeds of a number of, I think, articles and also people. So what I've been doing lately uh, in the morning is kind of whiffing through various chapters of Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. And it kind of started, I think, a few days ago, or actually earlier in the week when I was looking, I was, um, what was it? I was doing research on Pinterest and I remembered Ben Silberman, the CEO and founder of the company, in one of Tim Ferriss' books, either Tribe of Mentors or Tools of Titans, they're both practically encyclopedias of pretty successful people from unique backgrounds, which I love um, because I get that serendipity angle. Anyhow, that kind of started this trend of randomly flipping through chapters and trying to find people who've done things I admire or um, people who, who I just admire in general, who I'm just fascinated by and hoping also for some serendipity on maybe if I read something else, I'll kind of um, take something else out of it and it's one of those kind of timeless books for me and long um, I'll, yeah long story short uh, I got into the weeds of categorization like the law of categories aka build your own category like don't compete um, and one particular example from the tools of titans book that really stood out was like the question was who was the third person to cross the Atlantic um, by um, by flight or something? And you know the the exercise said, yeah, you you don't know, do you? And I was like, nope, yeah, I have no idea. I don't even know who the second person <laughs> or the first person is. And the apparently the third person is uh, Amelia Earhart. And I was like, oh shit, I had no idea. I know who Amelia Earhart is, but I know her as the first woman to cross um, the Atlantic. Um, and that was the point of the story where it's when you build your own car- category, like for Emily Earhart, she was the first woman to do something um, that make, that really just separates you entirely from the pack. And I thought that was a pretty cool um, case study just on the value of creating your own category. And so that kind of pushed me further, reading more about Kevin Kelly, Peter Diamandis, and that kind of came got me look curious about Peter Diamandis's 2829 laws um, for his own life. And for people who are not familiar with Peter Diamandis, he is the co-founder of the XPRIZE, um, which is, I think you get like a million dollars to practically solve huge problems for humanity, like, um, I don't know, space travel, diseases, just anything to actually further humanity, not like making some kind of, you know, I don't know, ad tech business or something to make people click stuff faster 
but actually advancing humanity. So XPRIZE is pretty well known for that. Um, there's also something called the Singularity University, which continuously pushes this envelope of human development and um, the success of humanity. And Diamandis is also just involved in so many of these space-related projects, all to just kind of get people off the Earth. What I didn't know was that he actually... Um, so he studied at MIT, I think in some kind of science physics background, and then he went to Harvard to do his med school, but then he got so fascinated in space that he went back to MIT to do his master's in, like, um, I think, like, aeronautics and astrophysics, so he's, like, a rocket scientist, and then he went back to Harvard to finish his med school, so I thought that was a pretty fascinating career trajectory that he had while doing all these, like, space-based uh, startups and companies, but anyhow, that's kind of a background, but I didn't know he had this kind of manifesto of his own, which and I love manifestos. It's kind of a personal kick I get uh, when I read them. And he, so I, oh, actually, FYI, I provide all the links and everything in the show notes at omdventures.com. Just find the episode link at OMD Daily, and I'll have all the episode notes. So, and I have the links related to everything I talk about. But going back to the list, so he has 29 laws. I think he updates it. I think because a couple years ago it was 28. And I thought I'd pick out a couple, um, let's see how many did I pick out? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So ten really stuck out, and I thought I'd just share them. Um, so I'll kind of riff off the ten that I selected. So the first one is rule number two, when given a choice, take both. Rule number three, multiple projects lead to multiple successes. Rule number five, do it by the book, but be the author. Rule number six, when forced to compromise, ask for more. Rule 16, the faster you move, the slower time passes, the longer you live. I shall say that again. Rule 16, the faster you move, the slower time passes, the longer you live. Rule 17, the best way to predict the future is to create it yourself. Rule 20, if you think it is impossible, then it is for you. Rule 22, the day before something is a breakthrough, it's a crazy idea. And rule 23, if it were easy, it would have been done already. Rule 24, without a tragedy, you'll miss it. Oh, without a target, you'll miss it every time. And I apologize to Peter if he's listening and I kind of said it in the wrong tone, but these were kind of the rules that kind of hit me and that got me going, hmm, and thinking a little deeper. I think if I were to kind of pick uh, the ones that I think really made me think the most um definitely was rule 16 the faster you move the slower time passes and the longer you live and it's just a very fascinating thought um just on perspective where it's, it's really a thinker like the faster you move the faster i do things the faster i execute the faster i iterate um it could actually present potentially kind of give this perspective that time is slowing down because i'm achieving much faster at a faster clip than how it would take if I went at a slower pace. So it's kind of like I'm slowing time down, I'm earning time, and that also expands my life because I'm getting to, to go through things faster. So that's one way I think you can interpret it. Um, at least that's how I, how I took it. So it kind of first forces me to kind of think more about iterating faster um, and actually earning my time back by doing so, by testing things faster and actually getting to answers and moving on from things um, quickly. Um, what's another one that really hit me? Uh, uh, the other one, it's, 
it's more so I think um, uh, I think to just keep me going on kind of the journey that I go on is rule number 23 um, if it were easy it would have been done already and just kind of a reminder that it's just supposed to be hard kind of putting in the default mindset that everything I'm doing is supposed to be hard everything that um, I want to do that doesn't seem kind of traditional is supposed to be hard and I think having that mindset is very powerful because I think the very scammy things that people sell will always talk about get rich quick fast and they try to make things sound easy but the reality I think is that it really is hard this it's not unattainable it's just hard to just expect it to be hard and yeah the fact if you believe somewhat in the semi-efficient market hypothesis is that if it actually is easy, most people would be doing it. Like being an investment banker is easy. Being a management consultant is easy. You know why? Because so many people do it. Like people might say, oh, it's really hard to get in. But really it's not because there is a proven system that you can just really just execute and just really try to um, gamify to get in. And, you know, I think... Yeah, those things, the obvious things are easy, but it's the ones that just aren't obvious are hard and it's supposed to be. So I'll move on to the next um, few articles. So this is, um, let's see. So I, I continue down the rabbit chain um, and or the rabbit trail and no rabbit hole. I went down the rabbit hole and I think in a particular chapter I was going through and I read about... Um, I read Maria Popova's chapter, I think, and she's the creator, writer of uh, Brain Pickings, and I've always admired her work. I've loved her podcast interviews because she's able to create a business where she writes every day and she just lives completely of donations, and that's the kind of model I adopted um, for OMD Ventures because, uh, honestly, it's just, yeah, I'm just trying to copy people I admire, like um, Tim Urban at Wake But Why. And Maria Popova at Brain Pickings, they both run a donation-based model and they write frequently and they just write about things that they're curious about. So I thought, yeah, I'd love to live a life like that. And the particular article that was mentioned that I realized I'd never actually read from uh, Maria Popova is titled, How to Find Your Purpose and Do What You Love. And she's written a number of things kind of that make you look introspectively. I think it's also because um, a lot of her writing uh is also she does talk a lot about Seneca um Marcus Aurelius a lot of the stoic philosophers that make you look deeper in as well as the transcendentalists like um Ralph Waldo Emerson David Thoreau so and those writings tend to also be extremely introspective and in in one way I think life needs to start by being introspective because if you don't understand from a bottom-up perspective how you actually operate and what you're driven by then everything that you do is kind of a moot thing. And so the the article is pretty short. Um, it goes through these seven excerpts or I guess uh, kind of like seven, seven parts um, where she talks about these seven particular individuals that shed various powerful lessons. And one particular one that I'm going to go deeper into is Paul Graham. Um, and another one is, I think it's Holsty. Um, and... I don't know who that is, but Maria makes reference to um, Holsey's manifesto, which I thought was pretty fascinating. And I'd really highly recommend you check out the link that I provide. And it's just, it's something that people pretty sell as a poster, 
um, because it's so well used by creatives. And I think I might even consider getting one myself because I love what it, how it looks, the fonts it uses, and just the message it has. And so I wanted to share two particular quotes that come from the Holstein Manifesto. One is, ask the next person you see what their passion is and share your inspiring dream with them. And this is a nice, I think, rule. Um, it's something I've shied away from a lot. Like, uh, I think I mentioned it before in some articles or even past podcast episodes where um, so I've, I used to work out of a WeWork and I had a, I wanted to make friends and that's why I went in there. But not, despite being ranked in like a 99th percentile for extroversion, I think I'm what people, like I'm still an ambivert, which is what 80% of the population are. I just have an extroverted twitch because I love talking to people. But I also think I was ex- like, I was extremely shy about sharing what I was doing. Like there was definitely some shame and fear in what I was doing because it's really hard for people to, I feel, understand what I'm trying to do because at the same time, I'm unsure either. Like I'm trying to f- constantly find a way to do what I want to do and this doesn't seem as very obvious to me either. But all that kind of rest resulted in um, me not wanting to kind of talk to people about what they do as well as kind of talking about what I do. Um, I'd always be kind of curious to ask ask people like what the company was about but I was always afraid that they might ask me what I was doing and as much as I was proud about what I was doing it was sometimes difficult to just share that but I think this particular quote where it says ask the next person you see what their passion is and share your inspiring dream with them I think it's a very I think um it's a way to look at the long term where in the short term, yeah, if I immediately tell someone that, yeah, I'm building a platform to invest in people and I want to build utopian companies. And if someone lights up from that, then I can probably create a long term friend. If they don't, then that's all right. Um, but I think it's just getting over the initial hurdle. But it's a very good, I think, uh, mantra to just keep in my mind, a good model, really. And the second thing from the manifesto I want to pull out that I thought was unique was if you don't have enough time, stop watching TV. I think it's really relevant for me because I love TV. Um, I, you know, I don't use social media. I rarely play games. Um, all really because I also have an extremely addictive personality. Um, and but for me, watching TV is like the big thing. Like it's always been a big thing for me, and to the point that I've. I think that's probably why I like building content um, or producing content, like writing, podcasting. Just everything about media has always been fascinating for me, and that's why I love watching TV. But it really is distracting in many times, so this is a very great way to just tell myself to just, you know, don't turn TV on, don't watch a show. So that's the two things I want to pull up. But I really recommend you check it out um, on the overall article. Um, just go to the show notes and check it out, or just even just type uh, Maria Popova brain pickings how to find your purpose and do what you love and you'll, you'll just go directly to her site you don't have to go through mine and the final thing I want to talk about so this is in reference to uh, Maria Popova's article where she shared a snippet from Paul Graham's article called how to do what you love I've read this article before and it's for me it's kind of like an annual pilgrimage into the vaults of Paul Graham's articles I think Every year, I've done like a full deep dive. So I think last year, I had a whole few weeks. I want to say something like a two to three week period where I was reading about 10 to 15 of his articles. 
um, and just pulling out various things that I found useful. And I did that the year before, <laughs> and I think the year before as well. Every year, slowly, the number of articles I read, reread and read uh, grow. But this time, I reread this particular article, How to Do What You Love, uh, I think about, honestly, about two, two times in full, and continued to kind of go back to rethink and rethink, because it was one of those articles where I read it, I needed to think about it, so I took a walk, and then I came back, and I read it, and then I uh, slept on it, and then I um, woke up, and I read it again, um, and I wanted to write more about it. And so I'm not going to talk about the whole extent of the notes I took um, like in detail. I'll just go over the high level and maybe read a couple um, excerpts that I thought were extremely powerful that were new for me as well. Um, so one particular point is I thought was just funny and cool was just the case for selfish parenting. And I think the what people you know, and then and I think this is all my interpretation, so it's not what Paul Graham says, but there definitely is, I think, the case where, you know, when you grow up and when you at least from someone like me and also like my kind of close friend group, we're all lucky to have, lucky to have really great parents who you know, are very unselfish. They sacrifice themselves and their own well-being to make sure their kids have an amazing life. Like, I have an amazing life right now, and a lot of it is thanks to my parents. Like, I wouldn't be in this country, uh, in Canada, if it wasn't for the decisions my parents made, uh, very unselfishly. And, but what happens, I think, in in many cases, is that parents end up sacrificing doing what they love um, for kind of an instant win of stability. And they give the impression to people that work sucks and you're supposed to kind of not enjoy the rest of your life. Um, and the university is only, that's the only like best part of your life. Like, I think it's been fascinating because my parents have been going through that journey. So like, I remember when I first started my first um, kind of, you know, corporate job as an accountant. Um, yeah, my parents were very, I think the support that they gave me every time I kind of told them about how I didn't like it, they would they tell me tell me how yeah you're not supposed to like work you're you're not supposed to have fun, um, you're not supposed to be treated well like you should do all the bitch work you can like even if you feel like you're being being wronged you should just kind of shut up and do your work like that was kind of what was um, ingrained in me uh, and kind of it's like the tough mentality you know just suck it up just do it and pay your dues kind of mindset and I think it, a lot of it came from the Korean. Uh, work culture that both my parents were experienced with. Um, but I think over time, as my own father became an entrepreneur and started living the life that he wanted, uh, it definitely changed my mindset of work as well. And it was kind of a mutual, I think, shift that happened in both my father's career and my career. Um, but I think in many cases, a lot of kids, at least my peer group, are kind of driven to believe that, where because their parents are very unselfish in creating that kind of lifestyle for their family, the kids end up inheriting that and they all think they shouldn't do what they enjoy. Um, and so a part of me thinks, yeah, what if maybe if the parents were selfish, that might actually be a very good thing for the kids. Like if the parents were selfish and did what they loved and yeah, maybe they don't afford a nice house or a nice car, etc. but it'll teach the kids to do what they love. And I mean, you know, Warren Buffett might not be the best example because he's so wealthy, but when they there's an interview with Peter Buffett, uh, his I think his youngest son, um, who talks about how like yeah, like, as Warren Buffett's net worth went up, like obviously they didn't have an uncomfortable life, they had a pretty comfortable life, but 
you just could like Peter Buffett just couldn't tell that his father was uh, you know one of the richest men in the world. Like he he didn't know that they had that much money. Like it, nothing really changed in the Buffett house except that Warren kept on telling Peter to do what he loved, and Peter's a composer and a musician. So I think that that's extremely important. And in one way, maybe um, you know if people actually did what they selfishly wanted, maybe they wouldn't have kids, and maybe those kids wouldn't exist, and that isn't a bad thing. I actually think, I personally think, um, if the parents aren't going to be good, like parental role models, then maybe it's a good thing that they don't have kids. Uh, maybe it's a good decision. Like, I don't think everyone should have kids. I don't think uh, it's necessarily a, a, like, I don't know, a requirement of law um, or life to, ha- to reproduce. I think you should really, you should reproduce if you believe you can actually be great role models for your children, if you can actually be great parents. Um, because having kids is a very selfish decision because you're creating more of your own self. Um, and so there's a bit of narcissism where you, you're saying you want more of yourself in the world. But in essence, like you should really do it if you've also already been kind of selfish in your own life where you're actually doing something you love. So you want to bestow that mindset to, other, um, to a younger version of you. And I think an, a big element um, of the essay was kind of the idea of thinking in bounds. Like, and I didn't notice this before, but it was fascinating to kind of relearn how Paul Graham sets out the upper and lower bounds of what is it, you know, how do you measure um, whether you love doing something or not? And it, I'll, uh, how should I talk about it? So I'll, t- I'll, I'll actually say the quotes that Paul Graham says and I'll talk deeper about it. So, this is what Paul Graham says. Here's an upper bound. Do what you love doesn't mean do what you would like to do most this second. The rule about doing what you love assumes a certain length of time. It doesn't mean do what will make you happiest this second, but what will make you happiest over some long period, like a week or a month. And some kind of examples that he, uh, Paul Graham uses is kind of like, you know, it's like doing something that you wouldn't do anything else with. Um, and the idea also is, to continue searching um you don't know when you like and actually i'll actually say another quote uh, or another excerpt in addition paul graham also says how much are you supposed to like what you do unless you know that you don't know when to stop searching and if like most people you underestimate it you'll tend to stop searching too early you'll end up doing something chosen for you by your parents or the desire to make money or prestige or sheer inertia and actually i should start off with that particular excerpt but that's kind of the idea of searching for what you love doing, and then the upper bound is, yeah, like something where you actually love what you do, you know, over a period of like a week or a month, um, and it just constantly gives you joy. And the lower bound, as Paul Graham says, is you have to like your work more than any unproductive pleasure. You have to like what you do enough that the concept of spare time seems mistaken, which is not to say you have to spend all your time working. You can only work so much before you get tired and start to screw up. When you want to do something else, even something mindless, but you don't regard this time as the prize and the time you spend working as the pain you endure to earn it. I think that's very important. And honestly, it's even a pretty solid lower bound. Like I would have considered a lower bound to be things you dislike, um, kind of doing the inversion model of like list out all the stuff you hate doing. And maybe that's the lower bound. If you don't do that, then you could get closer to what you love doing. Um, but I guess like Paul Graham is sticking with, you know, if you know activity A 
is something you think you love doing, let's pick a bound in kind of testing whether it is true or not. And the upper bound would be that, yeah, like you just, I mean, you're just happiest when you do it. Um, you you would, there's nothing else you would rather do. Um, it's something where you're like, yeah, I want to go, I want to do this on a Saturday and a Sunday, uh, regardless. Um, and the lower bound being, it's it's got to be better than um, a, the continuous desire for unproductive pleasures like, um, you know, playing games, goof, goofing off, you know, going to a club, partying, etc. Like, all this, I think, are unproductive pleasures. And I think, like, we're the, it's the idea of, like, spare time where you can make time to hang out with friends. You, have, you can make time to have these unproductive pleasures because you do. You need to find slack in your system. But I think it's when you're doing something and you feel so bored that you want to procrastinate and move on to doing the unproductive pleasures. And I think that's probably what the indication that you probably don't want to do this. And I think that kind of, for me, brought the bigger question of the the constant, I think, thing I ruminate over when I do projects is because sometimes uh, or many times I'll actually procrastinate a lot on doing certain tasks and I'll procrastinate and procrastinate and for me, it makes me wonder, is it because I really don't want to do this or is it because um, you know, I'm just experiencing resistance, you know, what Stephen Pressfield talks about? And I don't have an answer for that. Um, I've kind of been using a more so, the I'll just kind of let procrastination handle it naturally, organically, where I'll procrastinate to a point and... I'll just kind of forget about it, <laughs> forget doing the activity itself. Then I'll just let it pass. But if it continuously nags at me, I'll kind of sit down and say, okay, fine, I'll, I'll eventually do this. So I've just been using that kind of as an organic measure. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. And it seems that what Paul Graham recommends is um, this idea of always producing. And as he says, I'll quote him here, always produce is also a heuristic for finding the work you love. If you subject yourself to that constraint, it will automatically push you away from things you think you're supposed to work on towards things you actually like. Always Produce will discover your life's work the way water with the aid of gravity finds a hole in your roof. And for me, that was kind of the pejorative behind even starting OMD Daily. It was the idea that I wanted to create constraints in my life where I'd be forced to produce something every day and it'd be continuously kind of publicly showing what I'm learning, what I'm thinking about. But at the same time, it's a way for me to continuously stay honest with myself that I'll at least be constantly be thinking about, well, what else can I share with people that are listening today? What else can I talk about that seems to relate to this vision I have and my own curiosity with people and human performance? So that's kind of the idea. And I, and I think um, it is a very organic thing. And it's just the idea of the 10,000 hours of practice, 10,000 iterations, it's just the idea of continuously doing things. And, you know, I, I, don't, I forget who says it, but quantity has a quality all its own. And I think part of the quality is because you do something so many times, you end up canceling out the things that you hate doing. And you also end up discovering over time, which I actually love doing. At least that's the belief. And I'm just listening to Paul Graham and many other smart people who've kind of said very similar things. So that's just what I've been testing out. Um, and then, yeah, I think something I didn't take note of is just to do something you'd do without pay. Like he uses the example, would a lawyer be doing any of that uh, work without the high salary? Like, would you do it without, um, if being a lawyer wasn't prestigious? Would you do it if uh, you didn't receive any of that? 
compensation. And I think that's the best test. And I'm not saying everyone should quit their jobs and do what I did and just go incomeless for two years to figure out what they love doing. But it's a very, I think, important thing to think about. Um, what do you do if you, what would you be doing if you weren't getting paid? Um, would you be doing what you do if you weren't getting paid? And I think those are extremely important litmus tests. Because even, even for me, like even without being paid to do things, I still end up doing things I don't want to do. And it might sound foolish, but I've also realized that that's kind of the process because even without getting kind of any income as a job, there's still prestige, there's still social perception. I think still that still did drive a lot of my decisions earlier on. And I'm not saying it doesn't anymore. I think it still impacts it to some degree, but it takes, I think, time and a lot of practice to push things away. And I'll kind of let it off into with the final thing that Paul Graham says um, when he closes off his essay. Whichever route you take, expect a struggle. Finding work you love is very difficult. Most people fail. Even if you succeed, it's rare to be free to work on what you want till your 30s or 40s. But if you have the destination in sight, you'll be more likely to arrive at it. If you know you can love work, you're in the home stretch. And if you know what you what work you love, you're practically there. Once again, I think it's another reminder for me, at least, um, or anyone that goes on this journey, that it's supposed to be hard. Once again, it's a struggle. It's hard. <laughs> and um, another, I think expectations uh setting is yeah maybe if if you had to put an age on it it might just be that you won't get to do anything until your 30s or your 40s and it's not about the fact that 30s or 40s mean anything it's more so i think the amount of years it takes being outside of school so it's more so if you graduated at 22 23 maybe it takes you like some 10 years to you know do something and have an idea and maybe that's when people start like respecting you um because really even though you're in your 30s you really have only been living with your own mind and your own free self for maybe 10 years, right? So I think that's something to keep in mind. Um, I personally think I, in one way, I might have started pretty late, um, given how most kids these days start projects when in their teenage years. And um, I didn't really, I think the fact that I took this leap when I was 26, in one way, I felt it was pretty late. Um, but I guess in one also aspect like I got to try a lot of things when I was young so it was helpful but yeah maybe it's that's also the thing you're neither young nor old there's no um time frame for any of that and yeah I think these were pretty powerful essays these are pretty powerful things like it just made me just think all day um just from reading it thinking about it and yeah, so I thought these were pretty powerful things to share and hope this was interesting. Hope it was fun for you. And yeah, check out the actual articles themselves. I think they'll be very valuable for you um, as well. So yeah, thanks for tuning in and hope to have you back on the podcast again for the next episode. Take care.